Yeehaw, hello and howdy. Thank you for joining us on the Canon Stats Podcast, the weekly Arsenal Analytics Podcast. I am Scott Willis, and always I am joined by my co-host, uh, Adam Bogey. Welcome, Adam. You enjoying the international break so far? Hey, Scott. No, I am not. <laughs> I do not care at all about international international ball. So it's been so boring. Has there been um, anything of note, like of like real importance that's played? I, I know there were some games yesterday. I did not watch a single one of them. Yeah. I'm going to be 100% honest. I mean, it's, I didn't watch anything either. It, there was, there are, everybody's doing qualifying right now. So AFCON qualifying, Euro qualifying. I think last night, our time, Messi was doing qualifying for, what do they call it in South America? Con- or Conmebol, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, everybody's just qualifying for their continental championships at this point. I don't know that. I'm trying to think. I think Poland played. Yeah, I think yeah, Kivior. I did see that he played as a, a left back um, and as a pretty aggressive, advanced left back too. From the the stuff, I, I on again, I did not watch a single minute. Just saw a heat map of the game. Yeah, no, he's he's in like a solid. I'm looking at the heat map too. He's in like a solid, like overlapping slash inverted kind mm-hmm. of shape it's it's definitely on the front foot so yeah i mean i truth be told i generally do not pay a ton of attention to international uh maybe it's maybe it's like my hardwire uh status as an american where <laughs> typically like there's mexico mm-hmm. when you're a u.s men's national team fan and then it's kind of a bunch of nobodies except for when you lose to the nobodies and then it's really embarrassing so I'm just I'm just not a huge inter- I also just don't find the style of international soccer football to be quite as interesting. So for Americans, we say soccer. Yeah, I mean I try to I try to bridge the gap, you know. I speak to the audience, which is global. Yeah, no, I mean it's a a moment where everything kind of it, it always happens at the worst time. Like this is my least favorite of all of the international breaks of the season. You know, the mm-hmm. other ones it's fine, whatever, like these are kind of thing, but it's like you just got back into the swing of club football and then they throw this one right after the transfer window closes too. So it's like, you're finally mm-hmm. like, all right, our, our squad is settled. We're ready to go. And then nope, we're going to take two weeks and yeah, nothing. So this one always feels like the worst. Mm-hmm. The one in October, I think is probably the most fine, right? You're, you know, you're, you're a little bit more ready for it. And then the one that's kind of at the end of the year, like when you're starting to like get there, that's the one that feels like it always disrupts Arsenal season the most. You know, it's always, you know, party comes back injured, you know, Martin Odegaard back injured. <laughs> yeah, needs to, you know, have a match or two to get back into his club format and, you know, those kinds of things. So um, those those are kind of my rankings of the ones that I, I like the least. That's that probably some good content, which is the, the worst international break. Which international? Yeah. Well, in season World Cup is automatic number one. Um, that's a nightmare. But yeah, I I just I feel like that maybe it's maybe this is just like my my frame of attention the that I pay to this. But I always feel like we always get these breaks when things really start to like take a turn for the positive for Arsenal. Yeah. Uh, Obviously the first half of last season was just so good. Uh, And then the world cup happens and we come back and I think, I think Arsenal played a couple of good games after the world cup. Like they handled Brighton pretty easily. I think yeah, West the, the West Ham game. Yeah. Right after that was at the, yeah, that one is one that, you know, came, you know, early goal and then came back, showed real good resilience and, you know, made him feel very happy. Yeah, now now after all of the like heartburn that we've been getting about, you know, has it actually been a good start to the season? The is the defending good and and we go out there and yes, it was 1-1 for the majority of the game, but 
it was three, one on the final. So smacked Manchester United. Uh, and now we get another wonderful break. So just kind of throw your hands up at some point. Yeah. We knew I think it that has, that has taken a lot of the momentum, I think out of, uh, how much we really enjoyed that match. Because normally, like you got the the full week of build up, and you remember it, and it feels like everybody went away, and now you know it kind of lost. But you know, I guess the the alternative could have been if we had lost. I, I don't think that there would have been any arrest to the panic or anything like that. Because when you look at what's happening with Manchester United, like not only do they have to deal with this, but now their uh, PR stuff is going uh, haywire with all the stuff. So they're like trashing Jaden Sancho left and right. They're doing their best to cover up stuff with Anthony and maybe the club, uh, you know, maybe helped out uh, covering up some of the medical stuff. Uh, and then they invited a pedophile to a game. So, like, they are yeah. just having all sorts of uh, bad news cycles going against them. I mean, it would be like you said, it would be bad enough for them to have lost. And in that in that sense, like in that that way that they did to Arsenal, where I think that you know, oddly I've seen who knows, who knows, who knows who's just like um, engagement farming these days. But I have, feel like I have seen a strange number of posts that, that are like along the lines of uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't completely bad. Ar- Arsenal didn't dominate the game, which is just com- a complete joke. Manchester United Arsenal should be 50, 50. If both clubs are operating the way that mm-hmm. they, the way that they are supposed to, and it was not at all. It was like 70, 30 at best. So yeah, they would have, they would have a lot to complain about without the extracurriculars. So do I feel bad for them? No, because I do not like Manchester United. I do not like people who do bad things. So it is what it is. Yeah. That's a very controversial take there that you have there, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> you don't bad like people, people that do bad things for me. Yep. All right. I think there is at least something with some some meat on it to talk about in the Arsenal uh, ether and discussion. Um, and I think it's the Aaron Ramsdale versus the the David Raya discussion and decision. So there's a a report out of the Daily Mail. So I mean, take that with the, the grain of salt that it deserves. But I think it does give us a good jumping jumping off point into a good talking point for what we want to be able to kind of see. So the report says uh, the Daily or the Male Sport understands Gunners head coach Mikel Arteta is giving serious consideration to giving Raya a loan arrival from Brentford, a prolonged first team opportunity in the coming weeks. How much do you buy into this? Do you think there's a truth to this? Is it, you know, Daily Mail doing Daily Mail type things? Well, I mean, I think I think there's an element to it of water is wet, right? He he is uh, costing the club three million pounds just in a loan fee this season that sounds like basically just got to dot some I's and cross some T's to make it 30 million for him to transfer over. So I should expect that Arteta since the moment he first trained has been seriously considering putting him in the team. I think that, you know, it's going to be a season long discussion because while I think there's been a lot of sort of waxing about whether, you know, uh, Ramsdale could take a, take a prolonged, stint on the bench. But I mean, even if you just kind of look at what will happen when Arsenal return from the international break, there are multiple different kinds of competitions. There are games that are three days apart. Mm -hmm. Arteta was doing this playing Matt Turner on Europa league Thursdays last season um, until things got kind of, kind of icky. And then he put Ramsdale in there, but you know, so I mean, I, 
should should he absolutely yeah he should you spent a lot of money on him he should probably be playing and he is he is good he's i think he's an objectively good keeper so better i don't know we're gonna find out but you know when you come back to a saturday or sunday whichever day the 17th is a game against everton and then you turn around on i think it's wednesday for psv i think you're just gonna see one of each yeah it's just what i would expect yeah so we the upcoming schedule is so we have uh coming back from the international break arsenal play on sunday against everton that one uh, was moved late uh thanks to the the tv guys so it's gonna throw off all of our schedules then we have psv at the emirates on wednesday september 20th then we have tottenham on the 24th and then we have brentford in the league cup on the 27th um and it does seem that Arsenal have gotten permission from Brentford for uh, an on loan player to be able to play in that match. So, um, you know, if you're going to go against that or if you're betting here for the next four matches, uh, who's playing in which ones? I would bet I would bet. I don't know. It's I, I think that one of them is going to play in the in the Champions League and the League Cup and the other one will play in the Premier League. They've both kind of got one. Well, I think maybe the cup games are harder overall. Mm-hmm. Spurs might be the hardest single game, but it's also got the maybe the easiest game. Goodison isn't necessarily easy. They're all okay. Maybe they're all four. <laughs> now that I talk myself through it, uh, you, you've talked yourself through all the different possibilities right now. I think I have. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, smoke fire. Maybe we see Raya for Everton and Tottenham, and we see Ramsdale for the Champions League and for Brentford. Interesting. I, I still kind of think that. It's a still Ramsdale spot to lose. Um, I, I'm not, you know, this is maybe going against my my you know general character of being a, a Ramsdale hater, but I think he's been fine. Um, I don't think that I know there's been a lot of stuff going around with the uh, you know Ramsdale ranking at the bottom for post shot expected goals so far this games. season, but it's <laughs> it's literally four games and nine shots. Yeah, you know, a big big chunk of that is the the first Fulham goal where uh, that's when I think that's particularly hard for post-shot expected goals to handle. Like that's a massive corner case where usually when a player is shooting from that location, like, yeah, the, the keeper is on the goal line doing that kind of thing. But like that is literally following an error. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that Ramsdale is not in a position that he would typically be if they were, you know, in more of a set defense to being able to go against that. So yeah. uh, I think that's absolutely a corner case that is uh, throwing things off. And when you've only got, you know, I, I think they're 1.4 or something, 1.2, you know, is what they expected. And like of that, it was 0.06 or 0.06. So 6% to score from there. And it's like, that is a lot higher than 6%, I think, from there, given the everything else going around it. So mm-hmm. As much as I'd like to bash Aaron Ramsdale, like I, I don't think that was his fault at all. No, and I still think that it's his spot to lose still, and I don't think he's done anything to lose it quite yet. I think David Raya is going to have to come in. I think he's got an opportunity, but I think it's going to be. He's. I think he'll get the Champions League, and I think he'll get the League Cup. And if he performs from there, maybe the match after that he might to be able to step in. So I don't I don't know if I have it written down. Um, it's Bournemouth. I think that's on uh, September thirtieth. Yeah, that might be the one. Go to France. Yeah, so I think there's four these four matches. Each of them are going to get two, and I think it's yeah. I could I could see it either way. No, I think I think that you're right. I think one way or another, we're going to get this cluster of six matches where it's one weekend, one midweek. And I, I do expect that it's probably going to be three and three. 
just it's nice for it's nice for rotation. You're going to have probably somewhat different selections in between the two sets. Uh, Brentford isn't really a game that Arsenal can punt to the kids. I think a lot of people are going to be pretty disappointed when that team sheet, uh, when that lineup gets put out and it's probably like Fabio Vieira and Jorginho getting some starts. Maybe, I mean, maybe like Reese Nelson sneaks in there, but I think it's going to be pretty strong. So you're kind of looking at, at a stretch of like six games, two games a week where you've got some opportunities to kind of mix and match. And I think, you know, the way the season has started, I remember tweeting like at some point, I don't know, in mid-August or something that I want Arteta to unleash his inner tinkerer for this season. And I think he's really done that so far. And, you know, we're just going to get some very different looks from from very different clubs. Like PSV is completely different to 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 like what um, we're going to face against Brentford. And, and um, when we go to France and we we face Lons in that Champions League match. Like that's going to be completely different to what we face the very next game, which by the way is Manchester City. So yeah, I think it's going to be three and three. And maybe Arteta uses this as a little bit of a proving ground to see who he wants in goal for that game on the eighth. Yeah, because I think that is the the big one that's on the horizon. Um, you know, so everybody's going to get a, f- a few chances to impress to be able to do it. But mm-hmm. yeah, you brought up the the League Cup stuff, and I, I hadn't thought too much about that ahead yet about what the lineup might be. But I think you're right. I think it's going to be a, a pretty it's going to be rotated. I think, but not rotated in the sense of the old Arsene Wenger play the kids way. And no. I think that's probably good. Like you think about the benches we've put out lately, the benches have been incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of people that haven't been able to get the game time that we want to be able to kind of see, right? Smith Rowe Smith hasn't Rowe. been able to get on. Yeah. Trissard, Trissard. Um, is still not being able to get, you know, he got the one start and he had, I think what the one sub appearance as well. Yeah. Or did you get the two sub? I mean, just the one. It was just the, the Forest match, right? In last game. Yeah. Yeah. It was just Forest and the start against uh, Fulham is where he was able to play. Jesus is still coming back, so I think this will probably, you know, Jesus will probably be ready for Everton. Some of that's, you know, probably Eddie uh, maybe getting a start to be able to keep him going. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Reese Nelson, you know, is looking for more minutes. Uh, Jorginho, there's a lot of guys that I think that we want to have involved in our team that just haven't been able to do it. So it, it does make it so there's harder to fit in there. I think there's one guy that I would be really interested in, especially now that we've had a little bit of the, the injury concerns at the back. Is this a, a rural Walters game for Brentford? Maybe. Uh, I think it's it's going to depend on how we come out of Tottenham. You know, if we if if we're completely spent, maybe. But there are there are. I mean, it's party will will most likely not be back by then. So yeah, because I think really... the, the reports are targeting. Uh, is it after the October international break? I believe so, which would bring him back no sooner than the 21st. You know, knowing the way that Arteta works and the way Arsenal works, maybe they do try him out on the bench for the for the Manchester City game on the 8th because that would be that would be about 5 weeks after his 6 to 8 week injury. We've done it before with him uh, to <laughs> to poor results, but um at least he wouldn't be starting. So yeah, I mean you're you're going to you're going to get probably, you know, what the same back four that just played assuming everyone's healthy on that Sunday and then Thursday you're in a cup or sorry, Wednesday, it's Wednesday, in, it's Wednesday in the cup. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I, at this point, I'm kind of more like on the side of never betting that Arteta will play a young kid because he, 
he doesn't really integrate the younger guys into the squad that way. He doesn't, he doesn't just, he doesn't seem, I mean, he'd probably, probably be on the bench. I would, I would bet on him being on the bench for that game. Yeah. I I think if we're, this is going to be one where I'm going to read a lot into it about where he is in the pecking order and all those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So I I really am going to probably put a lot of stock into if he starts, then I think he's probably the next guy up because otherwise what is it cedric is kind of our or i guess it's uh, he's still there yeah he's still there he could start he could play so would you would you freak out if it was cedric ahead of walters no people people will but oh absolutely people love to freak out but would i, I freak, freak out? out no i mean it's it's the league cup i don't care uh <laughs> it's it's you don't care about the league cup until the semifinals right yeah i, I mean that's i i if we're gonna want to be like pep and like Jurgen Klopp, like we got to treat the League Cup like them until until late, and then try to win it if we're in the if we're in the finals or the semifinals. But yeah, I mean, I it just feels like it feels like we are currently in a period as a club where we don't really have that much overlap between the youth setup and the the first team and it's not because of any sort of negligence or mistreatment of the youth players or turning Hayland into a cash cow or whatever accusation you want to put out there. I just don't I think with the exception of Balligan and Charlie Patino when you look at like who is pushing for a first team presence the list is just maybe even no one at all. You know, like Brooke Norton Cuffey went to the championship and uh, I think that I mean I think it's very it's very fair maybe even a little generous to say that the reviews on him were mixed, and that's that's a whole step below where he would be playing if he were with Arsenal. I think I I don't think Lino Souza has gone out on a first team loan yet, so you know I just I don't think that there are that many guys that are that close. So Walters again hasn't hasn't done a loan either, so it's asking a lot of him to come in and. You know, maybe play against like Brian Mbuemo or you, yeah. you know Visa or somebody like that. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's a big ask. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much Brentford actually rotates for this match too. Yeah, because you know, they have been a, a very strong team thus far in the Premier League, looking quite good. Um, <laughs> uh, they had a an unlucky draw, or uh, I guess yeah, against Tottenham to start the the season, but after that they have looked really good. I know when I, I posted things earlier this year or earlier this week, um, they look like the third best team on, you know, after four matches. So, you know, take that again with the, the grain of salt and doing that kind of thing. But a, a very, very good team and it'll make a, a tricky matchup. So it'll be interesting to see for both teams uh, how they rotate and do things to come up in this match. Yeah, I was just looking at how Thomas Frank approached the EFL Cup last season. They only played two games. Uh, they lost to Gillingham on a shootout, but. I think that would have been fourth round, but he went, he went pretty weak in their first game. But again, this is against, I even lost who it was against, but it was against the lower, it was Colchester. So, you know, I think, I think there's arguably maybe one or two regular starters in this lineup, Janelt in the midfield. So I think he's probably going to rotate a good amount, just like Arteta. Well, it might be a, might be a little bit more of like a battle of the benches. Mm Mm-hmm than a battle of the kids, but you know, I mean, am I going to, am I going to like open the Twitter app an hour before that game and be surprised when I see 
like like Mbwemo and like all all the other regulars. No, I'm not because he's playing a big side and he probably does want to win. So, yeah. All right. So we do have a an official transfer out that we haven't had a chance to to talk about, and that's Nicolas Pepe. So his Arsenal yeah. career comes to an end, and he leaves for Turkey. Reportedly, what is it? Three million pounds. I'm a little bit surprised by that. Um, I'd, li- I'd like to know more details about what that actually means. But yeah, I think yeah. that's a lie. Uh, <laughs> it just yeah, it I've, doesn't pass the smell test. No, I th- well, I don't think I'm not accusing anyone of lying. I'm more accusing someone of making something up for engagement online. I think that uh, I've seen like a little bit more credible people describe it as a free transfer. So. I think that it probably was a buyout. That's what I was expecting from the, like, from right, the maybe, start. Maybe there's a, you know, a, a three million pound like discount that he took, you know, with like them covering that part of his last year wages or something like that. Like something I something like that. That yeah. as more plausible, which I think by the spirit of it, you know, maybe maybe it comes off as three million save, but it's not it's not a transfer fee that is compensation to break your contract with the player. It's the player agreeing basically to take 3 million less from the money that you already owe him. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, he goes to Trabs and Spore. They're like, yeah. See, I, I like, noticed I did not try to say that name. Uh, I was very, very care- I, I'm careful. I'm probably mispronouncing it as well. So, you know, but you're braver than I am. <laughs> he's, uh, I would, I would put that club in like the, the second tier of Turkey, not to say that they're not in the Turkish super league, but like, that is another league where it's like it's Galatasaray, it's Fenerbahce, Besiktas up at the top. And then it's kind of a couple other clubs that aren't terrible. Um, and, and they're, they're in like that not terrible uh, tier. I think right now they're a couple points out of first, but that's after just a little, a little bit of time in the league. So, you know, that's, it's kind of like their, their attempt to keep up with like the Zaha and the Moro Icardi signings that their rivals made. And it's probably going to go how you would expect, but you know, we bid, we bid you adieu, uh, Nicholas Pepe. Good night, sweet Prince. Thank you for the memories. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. So looking back, I don't know. So I think, uh, at least from, from my perspective, I think this is one where, I probably made the the biggest mistake so far that I've had in player evaluation of really kind of uh, letting the excitement of because I think you know where Arsenal were at that time it felt like we were in you know real the doldrums of everything and I think in hindsight I really let that color my uh, analysis of mm-hmm. the the move because I I went it's like oh, I was excited I thought so but I really overlooked I think some of the the red flags now with hindsight. I don't know where. Where do you think this move lands? Is this a, just a, a bad fit for the team? Was it something that we should have seen in the player? It was a you know kind of a a miss by the recruitment team for bringing them in. Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above. I mean, stylistically, Arsenal were kind of in a transition, right from from Wenger to Unai Emery. Uh, you know, those two managers do not play similar style. And then you get Arteta coming in who couldn't be any more different than, than Emery who, you know, allegedly didn't even want Pepe in the first place. He wanted Zaha, right? So it's a little bit of a, a jumble there. You know, I think fairly or unfairly, you get a huge burden placed on him for being just the club record signing. It's going to happen if you're at the size of a club. But 
yeah, I mean, was there was there some kind of miss uh, with Arsenal? I th- I think so. Mm-hmm. I think even if you compare him to kind of some of the deals of the time, I think he's something of an outlier. Lille, of course, have had some th- some clouds, let's say, swirling over some of their other dealings from around the same time. There have been things said about who was running Arsenal at that point. So, you know, it seems like it was a, there's a little bit of a smell to the whole transfer in the first place. But just we'll, we'll just stick to the football and the stats here. I think what he did in Lille definitely would be enough to catch the attention of anyone who, you know, was even remotely watching. But again, yeah, were there red flags? Absolutely. I mean, we look at, at his, his big outbreak season where breakout season where he had 22 and 11, 13 of his 22 goals were from open play. That's nine penalties. That's a lot of penalties. Yeah. 13, 13 goals is good, but it's not elite. It's no. uh, it's in and that very good looks range. Elite. 22 yeah. looks elite when you are a wing a wide forward. So 11 assists looks elite when you're a wide forward as well. And you know, there's not, there's not anything there with like overperforming XA or anything that's too scary at 9.6 XA. But the thing with Pepe, other than he had huge turnover numbers in France, which is a big red flag for me and not Mm -hmm. just, not just like, Oh, this guy's really direct and he has a lot of turnovers, but like this guy has a lot of turnovers at a level of competition where he shouldn't. But the thing that I would have, uh, probably noted if I were if I were on Twitter at the time was was just there's like there's just like a huge spike in the underlyings that that one season. You know his his xG more than doubled, which is I would I would put that squarely and and go prove it now and then I'll sign you territory. Uh, his xA more than doubled in in that that breakout season so. You know, are there guys who do that? And it's because something developed, some flick switched. Yes, but I never, I never bet on a flick switch or switch flicking. And this is just the new them now. I'm like, I'm very much a regress expector. So I think, yeah, I think they missed a lot and just playing a completely different style and, and a different league with so much more space. There's just, there's just a lot that I think they should have thought of more. Yeah, and I think this is one where, you know, kind of going back to to the some of the video and you know then, you know, kind of being able to see in hindsight I, one of the things that always frustrated me um at Arsenal was that he could get past a player, but then he would slow the game down so much that he'd have to get past that player again. Um yeah. and I think that's something that again it just it just I you probably should have caught that more in the video when I was watching, you know, doing that. And then I think there's the some of the the shot profile that still just very couldn't get central enough. I think sometimes with when he was cutting in, um, and I think that was something that certainly dogged him when he got into mm-hmm. Arsenal, where you know he didn't have the the Saka ability to start at you know the the corner of the box and then move it towards the D. He started at that corner and was only able to like move it in like a little bit, and that's just a, a relatively easy shot to to see coming. And you know, especially when you've only got one leg, everybody knows where you're doing it and he's not Robin where he's got a, a special ability to, you know, just get past somebody even when everybody knows it's coming. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. You never with with Bukayo out on the right wing, you feel like there's a pretty good chance this ends in a left-footed shot, right? But you also have a belief in 
the possibility that he is going to make any man who's trying to mark him one-on-one get out of his way. And whether he's going to do that by dribbling past them, you know, body faint and go the other way, whether he just does that with like being a better athlete or whether he does that with his strength, you just, you know, that you have options. He also with Odegaard, he really brings like the ability to play a one, two. Whereas I think that Pepe, you get him the ball in the same position. You expect him to take like a couple of, a couple of little light touches with his left kind of like, you know, maybe think about it a little bit and then he'll try his move. And it's like, at that point, like the entire defense is back. They're all set. Your, your teammates have stopped moving. Like you just, right. Yeah. They they may, if they made a run, they're offside now. So you can't, you can't make that pass anymore. They're offside. And uh, yeah, the attack is effectively over. We're looking for, Someone to that guy that you beat previously is now back and you know double teaming you. What's the opposite of a catalyst? That's what he was. He was <laughs> the opposite of a catalyst to the attack, and he was a neutralizer. He was a, he was very much an, an attack neutralizer. And you know, I mean, I know I know that we have the one season where he scored ten goals, but I've always been very much like, when did he score those goals? <laughs> because five of them were in three games where Arsenal's position was already set in the league five over three when you have 10 for the season. I mean, that's, that's something to, to flag too. So yeah, it's just, you know, I know that there are random people out there who feel like he should have been worth like 10 million pounds or 15 million pounds or something, but no, no, he's not. There's not, there's, he wasn't good in France. He was basically the same Pepe that got benched in terms of like, that was two years or, you know, but in, in France the last time, and it's like, neither of those performances were, were good. I, I would say they bordered on, bad um overall like the last couple of years like where he was like at best average yeah. and just just did not look like a shadow of him for himself yeah and you know before before there was like the success that arsenal are having now people were saying that's arteta's fault you know he's not setting him up to succeed and all that all that jazz but i think it's just kind of a player kind of buckling under the weight of his surroundings mm-hmm. losing his job to a much brighter much better, much happier, you know, more expressive and creative player. So it's just, uh, I don't know. Now we write a new chapter, you know, pound for pound, probably the worst transfer Arsenal have ever made. Yep. Well, let's move on to a happier news. So we have uh, three Arsenal players that are nominated for uh, Ballin's Door. Um, so Aaron Ramsdale is up for the the goalkeeper award. Mm-hmm. Um, you surprised by that one at all? I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I think that the discourse that surrounds him internally and the banter that we get about him isn't quite in line with like the global reputation. Mm-hmm. I think that the... I think that sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we're, we're basically evaluating like, is this a keeper who can be one of the top two or three keepers in the premier league? And the guys in that group, I, although it's ironic, right? Cause Allison didn't get nominated for this. Well, award. Yeah. That's, that's probably the biggest snub that I, I saw on here. Yes, I would agree. But those guys are pretty much always going to be nominated for this award. So, you know, I think, I think we have to acknowledge that, you know, he's probably like, regardless of shot stopping metrics, he's probably somewhere in like the top five or six keepers in the league. If you're just, just by at default like, that, you know, makes him, you know, at least top 10 in Europe. Right. Like, cause I, I think probably. there's a, a I mean, pretty good yeah, chance. About that. 
whoever's keeping goal for like PSG, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, and maybe a handful Barcelona. of the, yeah, yeah, maybe Those maybe one there, or yeah. two of the yeah the Italian clubs. So yeah, I know uh, Onana also got the the nomination from yeah his time at Inter. He did, yeah. And there's like and there, and you'll get guys like Mike Mignan at um, AC Milan who are just very good. But yeah, no, I think I think it just kind of shows that people are are impressed by him. He you know, maybe he hasn't been at his best to start this season, but he did. He, he had some really outstanding performances last year, even, even when kind of the tide started to turn, um, you know, I thought keeping Liverpool to two was super hurt, like a, like a heroic achievement on his part. Absolutely. And, and that's kind of like the story with him is he's got that, he's got that kind of like howler gene, but he's also got like the, I'm going to put my te- put the team on my back gene too. So it just kind of makes for some volatility, but yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely weird home and away splits. Like there's, there's yeah. something about the, like the focus that he's able to call upon yeah. when he's away and he's got the, the hostile crowd keeping him on there because that's the other thing too. It's like the, the home and away splits for the clean sheets, the, the home and away for just his, his savings. Like it's still probably weird because the samples are small and like weird stuff happens and those kinds of things. But I don't know. It's a fun story to, to kind of uh, create a narrative around. Yeah, I mean, he just he definitely loves to be hated. I think he I think he really gets gets motivated by that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I I I hope uh, I hope that whatever goes down here with with Raya and everything that never comes back where he's the away keeper at the Emirates and he's doing doing that business. <laughs> oh, to absolutely. Arsenal. But yeah, I mean, I was I, I was really psyched for him. I think that he could have used something like that, you know, because I feel like he's kind of started the get that chart going around and people tend to kind of default to blame the keeper when more, you know, more goals are allowed than you should, but sometimes mm-hmm. the keeper just gets completely hung out to dry. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like it's a, a goal is almost never one person's fault. You know, you, you can think back to the, you know, the, the Manchester United, their, their goal that they actually did score. Right. And you kind of think through like, all right, the, the play starts with Declan Rice probably overpressing. So maybe he gets a share of blame. Havertz makes a, a, a poor decision, I think, with his pass. Um, and then he also like the ball bounces weird for him, so he can't do it. Maybe Odegaard should close see that happening and close that space a little bit more. And then, you know, Odegaard being flat footed there isn't able to get a foul on Ericsson as Ericsson runs through the midfield that Declan Rice abandoned. I think Ericsson makes a, a beautiful pass into Rashford, you know, maybe White. You know, if he's got, you know, anticipating that maybe he should be able to cut that out. I think that's a little bit harsh. But then um, then White and Saliba get there together and it feels like neither of them are able to corral Rashford right. Um, I think there's a good part for Rashford in there, too, where like his absolute like hesitation there forces White to go deeper than what I think he wants to be able to do, opening mm-hmm. up that cut onto the right foot. And then, you know, then Ramsdale, like I think his positioning is maybe just slightly off. Um, you know, if, like, ideally, maybe he's a little, one more half step to his left and he's able to get further. But it's like, I just went through there and it's like, that's half the team that you could yeah. probably apportion some of the blame to. And I think that's basically how it can be on almost any goal a team gives up. Mm-hmm. It's never any one person's fault. There's moments where everybody could have done something different to stop it. And like, that's just the game. Yeah, I mean, I I just an example that springs right to mind. It's a, it's an iconic goal conceded from last season for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the goal to it's the the equalizer 
against Liverpool at Anfield, Bobby Firmino's header at the back post. Mm-hmm. Ask the majority of people who watched that game whose fault that was, and you will get a pretty uniform answer that it was Zinchenko. Why? Because because Trent nutmegged him. Nutmegged him. But if you watch that play, Ben White does not mark Firmino running to the back post, and he completely misses a chance to make a clearance there. I mean, there there are two people. It takes two to tango to give up that goal because if White had had played that correctly, there's a chance that that's just a that's just a cross that gets cleared. So, there, like I agree with you, it's just um, it's kind of it's kind of why you have to be a little crazy, I think, as a keeper because you're going to get blamed for everything, and you you kind of have to be a little bit of a weirdo, a little bit of a jerk, I think. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, but certainly uh, have a screw loose or something like that there. All right. So Martin Odegaard and Bukayo Saka are up for the big award. So they're on the the 30 player shortlist. I think that absolutely those guys are deserving to be in the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think either of them are going to win, but I think it's yeah. a, a great spot for them to, to be nominated with. Yeah. I don't know if it'll be the last time, but this is definitely Messi's award. You know, prepare yourself for a lot of moaning from like the northern part of England, but the the reality is Erling Holland uh I think was not the reason why they won any of what they did. Uh if if you had to like give it to a Manchester City player, I would say he would be my third choice. So yeah, I mean you you definitely are gonna get some complaining though because he scored a, a boatload of goals. People are gonna say, well that's what the award is, and I I don't agree. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be messy. It's probably going to be Holland in second. Uh, I'm not really sure who's going to be third. But, you know, Bukaya and Martin are probably not going to be terribly high in the voting. I did look it up, and it's their first. It's Arsenal's first even nomination since Alexis Sanchez 2015. Interesting, yeah. So that uh, should say a lot about where we've been <laughs> as a fan base. Uh, even, uh, even some, like, randoms like Dries Mertens have been nominated in that time. So... It's good to get somebody in the discussion again. And, you know, whether whether there should have been more or not, um, you know, maybe there's a shout for Saliba. It's it's not necessarily something that I'm upset about. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Saliba didn't get the, did he not qualify for the, the under 21 award? Was he just I think slightly to literally be under 21? OK, not like the, the under 23 World Cup where you know, if you if you start at a certain age, you're good. Yeah, but yeah. I was looking here at the nomination list and like from Manchester City, like the player that I think I would pick as the most important for that team didn't get the nomination because I think I would have picked Rodri as the the guy that was probably yeah. the the biggest uh, factor for them for being able to do it. Right. So they ended up with uh, De Bruyne, Silva. Uh, they also had, uh, you know, obviously Holland, uh, Bernardo Silva and. Rodri did get nomination. I just uh, had him further down in my list here. Uh, It's it's hard to look at 30 names and quickly (laughs) grab one here. Yeah, lots of uh, Manchester City guys here as well. Which makes sense. I mean, you trouble winners and everything. Oh, yeah. Julian Alvarez also got on the list, too. But I think that's uh, for the the Argentina World Cup more than the the City trouble. I I agree. I think being decent for the City trouble helped him, but largely a World Cup accomplishment and maybe... I'm not even even sure what time frame they're considering, but maybe even some of the stuff. Isn't it, isn't it a, a calendar year award? Uh, right? I don't know when it starts and ends, though. Yeah. Is it just the 2022 year? I, I don't know. That's a, a good question. Maybe it is, because uh, if they're counting the trouble, then that would be a 23 
I don't know. Yeah, this is a, an interesting thing that we should have uh, known about, but yeah. Show prep. But you know what? We, we, we have, we're, we'll take some, uh, nominations here of uh we didn't know because arsenal haven't had a player uh worth discussing in it in a long time so yeah i mean uh, it's kind of like when arsenal posted how the champions league format works yeah a month or month this month or so ago <laughs> it's like well we don't know yeah no i'm i i was really psyched by it i just like basically like you said i mean it was the truth like i haven't been paying attention to those nominations in a while because you know there's been nothing to really look for except for maybe Saka being up for the golden, like the, the U 21 award or like the golden boy or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just, it's, it's very cool. Um, particularly when we spend so much time and effort, like kind of bigging up these like younger players to see somebody like Saka and also Odegaard too, because he's come a long way since joining to see them like take that step and become like that, that actual, like this guy walks into 99% of starting lineups in the world. That's just, that's been very cool for me. I think that's been kind of the 2022 story for Saka being the, the now two time England player of the year on a team where you've got Harry Kane and you've got Marcus Rashford and you've got like, like actual big stars and he's winning it ahead of them. That's feel, it feels like a big kind of a pivotal moment in his career. So absolutely. So I'm, I'm thrilled by him. I think he'll probably come higher in the voting than Odegaard, even though mm-hmm. Odegaard had a crazy good season. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun to see where he ends up and inevitably we'll get a lot of complaints about that too. Yeah. I, I hope, you know, both of them get in that, you know, top 15 type range and, you know, be able yeah. to, to kind of see it. So, yeah, I think they, they both uh, are, are not, you know, winner, you know, or at least uh, in the running for winning it, but hopefully they, they have a good showing overall for them. And it's a, a great thing to be denominated for. All right. Yeah, it's, um, let's uh, it's a bunch of French into... people. Exactly. The French. Yeah. Is it there? There's media and players that, that vote on it too. So yeah, they, so, they, don't, yeah. they don't know anything. No, it's rigged. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let's go into the, the housekeeping before we, we finish things up. The show is supported by our much appreciated premium subscribers this month. If you've been uh, uh, with us, you'll have seen Adam's very good players to watch around Europe series. Uh, he's been giving you um, anywhere from, you know, like five to nine players from each league to keep an eye on this year. He, and you've been doing really good at kind of keeping them kind of like under the radar. So the the guys that you, know, you maybe haven't heard about. So it's uh, some really, really good names to be able to do it. You'll also get all of the the post-match coverage that I've been doing. I, I started a new thing where I've been posting my actual notes that I take during the match. Um, mm-hmm. That's been something that it, people thought is interesting and worth doing. And um, I've already, I'm already doing it anyway. So it's, I'm, I'm glad to, to publish it as long as people like to see them. So all sorts of good stuff. You get our gratitude as well. Um, so yeah, uh, if, you, if you're doing that, consider some, signing up for it. Uh, liking, subscribing to the podcast is, is always good. Um, all right. So the, the last thing that I had on my list, and I thought this was really interesting, is that PGMOL started to release some of their audio from the contentious decisions that they made. They only did a select grouping of them. And I think it was an interesting grouping of them. But one of them is Arsenal related. And it's the, the, uh, the penalty that was for uh, the it was called back against Kai Havertz. Yeah. Yeah, it's a interesting one. So, uh, what do you think about PGML doing these kind of releases? I mean, I think I think it's important, right? Because there's a really big there's a really big perception issue around that organization 
particular, you know, I mean, it's, it's every few weeks you get another commentary about how everybody's from the Manchester area uh, who are the referees and all this, all this good stuff. So I think that if, if they're going to combat that, you really do need to be more transparent. I've, I've said kind of half joking, but now I kind of think it's actually completely serious. Like that this, you know, we've seen other leagues just mic up uh, refs and allow that in real time to be audible. Um, so you can hear what's going on. You know, I think different people kind of had varying degrees of, of outrage when, when they listen to the audio, <laughs> there's definitely an element there of, of like, I can't remember who the VAR is, um, but uh, it's but Jared I'm, Gillett was the Jared Gillett. Yep. So he's there. There's like, there are elements there of him kind of guiding Anthony Taylor's decision, telling him what he's going to see when he goes to uh, look at the screen which and to be fair, Anthony Taylor asked, what am I going to see when I go to the screen? He did. And, and Gillett kind of also takes it a step further and says, you're going to see that there's no contact, you know, so it kind of makes the decision for him. And, and when you watch it in, in real time on their recording, Taylor watches the replay what once. Yeah. You and I are both, you know, fans to varying degrees of the, the national football league here in America. And I mean, those guys spend so long on the monitors. Sometimes they watch it back from angles and they, they determine where the ball should be and how much time should be on the clock. And it just feels like it takes a lot longer than watching one replay. So mm-hmm. you can kind of get into a replay hole though, when you watch it too many times and you're like yeah. overanalyzing it. So I think that, you know, the thing, the thing that bothered me about the clip is that is I agreed with, I can't remember who posted it, but I saw and agreed with the point that it's not what we saw in that video is not in keeping with kind of the, the written written or spirit kind of implied purpose of VAR, which is to correct mistakes that are, that are obvious, clear and obvious. Yes. So I think in that case you have, you know, as, as to me is illustrated by Arsenal fans, uh, varying reactions to the play itself. I saw it in real time, thought it was a penalty. Then I saw the first replay and I, I literally tweeted, it will not surprise me if this gets, gets taken back. Uh, it doesn't look that bad. Um, and then you've got other people who are like saying, you know, things along the lines of like, Juan Bissaka clatters into him, Casemiro rolls over him, you know? So it, it, to me, the point I guess I'm trying to make is that one didn't feel super obvious. And I think that the way you call it on the field, that one should have stood. Yeah. So, so hearing Gillette basically say like, you're going to go see this and you're going to see there's no contact and they completely don't even talk about Casemiro's role in the whole play. Yeah. I mean, it's frustrating. Yeah. So it was really interesting to, so from my perspective, I thought it's a penalty. And I think there was a, an interesting thing from Dale Johnson, who for ESPN kind of does their, their VAR review. He did a, a mm-hmm. Twitter poll, which is, you know, as everybody knows, the, the most scientific of all polling. Um, so his, fir- his first question was, did you think it was a penalty? And it was about uh, 25 to 75 in the favor of uh, they didn't think it was a penalty. And then there was the second question, which is, do you think it should have been overturned? And uh, was it a clear and obvious error? And that one came out 50-50, which I think really kind of uh, matches what we're saying here. It's like, it was probably soft, but I don't think it was a clear and obvious error where I think most people would have thought that even though they didn't think it was a penalty, that it should have been overturned by that, which I think is really kind of interesting. But, you know, listening to the, the, the VAR audio, so they ask um, Anthony Taylor what they see. And Anthony Taylor says that he saw Wambasaka trip him with his first step across. And so from that perspective, that is where they're saying it's a clear and obvious error because 
there wasn't actually any contact on that first step. Right. But to me, like once you've already kind of looked at the the video there, it's like, well, maybe he didn't see that, but it's like, is it still a penalty with the other contact that's there? I thought yeah. it was a little bit disingenuous or disingenuous to say that Havertz moved his leg into Wambasaka. It's like, to me, like, I don't know that that's, uh, that's him making his run, being able to do it. And then I think Wambasaka is impeding him trying to make that run. Um, you know, the, like we all go back to uh, the David Luiz, his knee brushes the, you know, the, the cleats of, uh, the wolves like guy and he like, falls yeah. down and not only does he get a penalty but he gets a red card too um like because his last is, man right so it's like we've seen these kinds of uh very very soft you touch a player as he's running through and and that is often enough to make when you're, you're moving at that speed it doesn't take a lot to knock you off your balance to be able to do it and it happens not just once but twice right so he gets a his his back of his heel hit by Wambasaka and then Casemiro, you know, who tries to pull out of it, but does still make contact with him after he's already off balance. Like to me, it's a, a foul and it's weird that that's not put into any consideration after yeah. they've, they've done that. And I think that's the part that's more frustrating for me. Well, and we've seen, as you alluded, we've seen these almost identical situations called the complete opposite way using VAR, you know, when you're talking about what Casemiro did, um, I'm just reminded of West Ham last season where Gabriel was completely pulling out, barely nudges Paqueta, who's already falling. And that's true. And that was called a penalty. So, I mean, there, here's the thing about like the player, the attacker creating contact is there are ways or there are benefits of creating contact other than to go down and draw a foul. I mean, you can screen the ball from the defender creating contact. You can, so you can prevent them from getting you off the ball. So, you know, we see Saka do that in the penalty area all the time. And sometimes he just needs to fall down, but he's too, too strong to do it like that. So yeah, it's, I think it it reminds me a lot of, you know, the handball penalty or the handball rule is in the same family. Like Mm -hmm. what's a catch in the NFL. It's almost impossible to define these days. And it's like, at some point, I think you almost need to do like, just rip the whole thing up and start over again because you've kind of like governed and regulated and bureaucratized this whole process to the point where now we're, now we're doing exactly what you're saying where the referee, what the referee says, I saw his first step across Havertz make contact and trip the player. So that's exactly what they're going to review. They're not going to review the whole, the play holistically and get to the actual correct outcome. They're just going to look at that one minute aspect of it. And that's the defense after the fact is, you know, we had to review that and that was a clear and obvious error because yeah. there wasn't the, but yeah, but okay. But what about the play? So, right. Yeah. yeah Cause he doesn't get to watch it at the, you know, the slow motion in real life. Right. Like that's tough. And it's like, you kind of see that and it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's hard to be a referee and to be absolutely perfect in doing those kinds of things. I've been a referee and I've made mistakes that I knew were mistakes right when I blew the whistle. So it's, it's a terrible job and everybody's mad at you all the time. <laughs> Regardless yeah, right? of you, you don't, you do don't ever get credit for when you make, you know, the, the good calls or doing those kinds of things. It's only when you're uh, after the fact, you've made a, ma- a mistake. And I think it's also right. Like going back to like the poll of, did you think this is a foul or not? Like, there's always going to be like a continuum of like, do you think that this is a penalty? Is this a foul? It's, it goes into the weird, I think outside of the pitch, 
or like outside of the box, this is a foul every time, right? Like, absolutely. But we have this weird special rule inside of the 18-yard box because the the penalty of being called a foul here is so high. So like they raise the bar and it's it's very weird. And I think it it throws off our natural inclination of what's a foul because in you know 80% of the pitch it's completely different. And then this one tiny section, we have completely different rules. It's the same thing like when you know there's a corner kick. Like yeah. on a corner kick, you're allowed to freaking wrestle anybody and do anything. Any other time during the match, like that's not allowed. And it's it's always yeah. uh, bizarre how we have these different situations call for different rules. Or even uh, just continuing down that very unhappy rabbit hole, even just like uh, d- different uh, game states or different it, a player making one foul when they have no bookings against them and making the same foul when they have a yellow card and how the referee will not give the second yellow, even though it screams for a yellow. They're like, you know what? We're in the 31st minute of this game. I'm not going to change it completely by sending this guy off. Like, no, that he he broke the rule. Send him off. That's how it should be. Yeah, that, that, that goes back to like, well, maybe we should have something different there. Like if you're so concerned about ruining the game where it doesn't match. Like, yeah, like it's a yeah, there's a, some certain things I think we could tweak there. But I think by overall, like I'm very happy that PGMOL is trying to be more transparent, even if we don't always agree with uh, how they're doing some of these decisions. I am glad mm-hmm. that we are getting this information and understanding more the, the thought process behind the decisions that they're going to come to. It's, like, it's, a, it's a step in the right direction when we need like a handful of steps. So let's let's keep moving forward would be my my takeaway from that, Uh, because it's you know, we're not we're not there yet, but that doesn't mean one step isn't good. So let's just take more. Yep, absolutely. I think that's that's pretty good for an international break, Uh, you know, getting some some good discussion in there. Um, I did see that we had one question here uh, when I asked out here. Um, This is from Larry Verth. So I said, uh, Trissard should be our starting left center meal fielder um, until January. Uh, yes or question. no? I know it's a statement. So it's a, I, I'm, I'm adding a, a yes or no to the end of it. Uh, the, my answer would be no. I don't think that he, I think he, he did a good job playing that in the preseason. The question, the way it's framed, he should be the starting in, until January. I just don't, I guess I just don't see why. You know, when Thomas Party returns, I would rather play him deep and move Rice up than do that. But I think that I think that realistically, it would probably be wishful thinking if you are kind of an anti Havertz person to expect Arteta to change that anytime soon. I think that Arteta is very much measuring his success at that left eight spot in a very different way than the typical fan is. Mm-hmm. I think that. Arteta would not actually have too much negative to say about what Havertz has done at all. Yeah, except for, you know, he just hasn't put the ball in the net. Like, that's been, like, everything. He he wants to put the ball in the net, and I think as soon as he starts doing that, Arteta will be very happy. He will, and here's it. So this is, this, like, reminds me a little bit of the discourse about Eddie and Kedia, um, particularly when he was going through that really rough patch where he just couldn't buy a goal Mm -hmm. last season. It's and this is why things like XG exist, because we're looking at 
you know, predictability and replicability of chances. And when you have a player who consistently can get themselves in a position where statistically speaking, like probably, probably, According to probability, they they have a very good chance of being able to score a goal, and that's like their skill set is getting there. Um, that is not a super common skill set, and I think that's something that Kai Havertz has in spades. I think Arteta really values that, and I think Arteta would probably tell you that if he keeps playing that same way and getting these same chances, like he's going to have some goals. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the other thing that's out of his control is Kai Havertz should have an assist by now. <laughs> it's not his fault. He doesn't have an assist. He's second on the team and he passes an XA among starters. So to the, to the Trussard issue though, I think that if anyone were to take that spot away from Kai Havertz, it would probably be Fabio Vieira. Yeah. Uh, I think that's an interesting one. A couple of very, very good cameos in that spot. Yeah, and I think we're we're getting to the part of the schedule where we're going to be playing twice a week, and I think we are going to be able to see more of these players to get their chances. So we'll have uh, Champions League games, which I think we'll see less rotation than we will against the, the Carabao Cup, where I think we are going to see a lot of these guys that were on that second team step up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, I think Trossard's going to start getting minutes. I think Vieira's going to start getting some chances here with the Champions League coming up, and yeah, it's going to be really interesting to, to see all of these guys fighting for these spots and being able to yeah. do it. But overall, I think Havertz has been good. I think the one thing that I've actually been really surprised about and that I've been very, very happy is the defensive output. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that was one of the things that you know people were really worried. It's like, oh, can he can he do those kinds of things that Shaka was able to do? And I think he's been a resounding yes so far for what he's been able to do. Yeah, His moments in front of the goal have not carried over into his defensive output which i think is uh something that's good for him to be able to kind of see like still being able to affect the game being able mm-hmm. to to do things you know uh, people you know point to like the the off the ball stuff and doing that and i think that's absolutely something that he's been able to do good so yeah making good runs getting in good positions it's a uh, you know it's been fine yeah to i think good overall you know a couple of frustrating moments that have stuck out yeah i mean and and you know if he just doesn't whiff on that shot against United, I would probably think a lot of people would feel a little bit differently. He's got, he's got a little bit of what I've referred to as like the gangly doofus factor working against him where his body is just kind of awkward. And that is off putting for people. Yeah. Because he does, you know, he's not like built like very, I don't I don't know what word I'm trying to look for. Like he just, it's kind of an unnatural build and unnatural physique, probably because of his height. Yeah, tall players just look like like giraffes, right? Like that's just kind of yeah. like the thing it is. Unless like it's never like, right. Unless they're built like Skamaka or something where they're also like mus- muscular. But Or Erling Holland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although he can look awkward at time too, right? Like when you he think does... about some of his receptions, like he doesn't always get them clean. Like he just, you know, you forget about it because he scores, you know, buckets of right. goals. Yeah, at that point, he's got three goals already. Yeah, no, I've, I think one, one just like pro tip I would say is you know, go back and watch some some clips. Watch on the left half of the pitch, Arsenal's left half of the pitch, especially in attacking areas. If somebody else loses the ball, watch who puts the most pressure on the 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 up up up. Sorry, the opposition opposing player, yeah. the opposing player who does have the ball or receives the first pass. Like you're going to see Big Red in 29. Like he's he gets right in there and mixes it up like right away. I've been I've been very impressed by that because I think that. One thing about Jacka is, is while he is very like stout and and strong and able to outmuscle players, um, he would not be very quick in that situation. Mm-hmm. And you uh, 
I think Havertz is a big upgrade in that sense. He can he can come back to the ball, find it really quickly, and and uh, you know he's actually got more recoveries than Jacka had last season. So it's it's been it's been encouraging, and I think that you have to like when you're somebody like Arteta, you just preach that repetition. Keep doing that. Keep making those runs. Keep being there when the shot is taken. A rebound is going to fall to you, and you're going to nail it, and it's going to go in. Um, something you know, good things will come when you when you put in the, those kind of like inputs yep just needs one to go in like off his butt that he has no idea about and he can't yeah. screw up with his confidence and then yeah hopefully he'll be rolling again like the he needs like a haji right at the u.s world cup goal <laughs> exactly all right i think that's a, a good spot to end it if you enjoyed the episode i um, mean you'd like to support the podcast uh subscribe give us a good rating reviews are always good stay up with all the stuff that we do. Um, you can find us on all of the the social medias at Canon stats. Uh, you can follow Adam on Twitter. We're, we're never calling it X here. Um, it's always going to be Twitter always in our hearts at, at Adam bogey. So thank you, Adam. Uh, it was good to talk to you. Yeah. Good to talk to you, Scott. And before we go, we should mention that we'll be on the Gunners oh, yeah, versus Gunners Panther versus classic uh, potathon here uh, Sunday night. It's 11 PM. My time nine, your time. I think it's 5 a.m. 5 a.m. in the UK. So uh, check that out. Give some some money to that cause. It's always a really good one, and we're excited to be part of it. So, Yeah, that's a, a good plug there. Uh, yeah, so thanks for listening, guys, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Cheers, y'all.